Well, good morning. I am excited to be here with you this morning to continue our brief mini-series that Seth launched last week on prayer. He is on vacation this week, and I have to confess that preparing for a sermon is a great way to boost your prayer life. More specifically, my prayers this week have been, Lord, please return before Sunday. (laughs) But that aside, uh, what a privilege to be here to share what God's put on my heart lately. Quick introduction for those of you that may not know me. My name is Darren Kellogg. I am one of the elders here at Salem. My wife is Michelle, and we have three children. Our oldest daughter, Brenna, is married to Isaac. They live in Tallahassee, Florida. Brenna is finishing up her last year of her doctorate at Florida State University. Isaac works with his dad in a web design business. Our middle daughter, Nicole, just graduated from the University of Northwestern in St. Paul last Christmas, and she is an elementary school teacher in the Rollsville area, and which is just outside the cities. And our youngest, our son Micah, is out in Bozeman, Montana. He just wrapped up his second year of studies in civil engineering at Montana State University, and then he stayed out there this summer uh, working on an internship Um, in the area, and he'll return to school this fall. So I think we have conveniently lost him to the mountains. But with our three kids out of the house and in three separate time zones, um, Michelle and I are settling into this new stage of life called the empty nest. And just between us, we're kind of enjoying it. It's a very rewarding phase of life. But the question still often comes up in our daily conversation. Have you heard from the kiddos today? So that'll be going for some time. Also, let me share with you something Uh, more that I think will help you get to know me and understand me a little better. I'd like to tell you how our family handled vacations, especially when the kids were younger. Our middle daughter, Nicole, once shared with me an astute observation. She said, Dad, it seems that our family goes on trips, not so much vacations. And when I pressed her on what's the difference between a vacation and a trip, she said, well, a vacation is when you go away to rest and relax and become rejuvenated, and a trip is when you go and you have a mission to accomplish and something to, to, something to do, and then you come home and you're more tired than when you left. Well, that makes sense, right? That uh, oftentimes we're going on mission trips. We don't go on mission vacations. Uh, Michelle and I just returned from uh, Israel, where we went on a trip to Israel with some of you here in Salem and another church. Our purpose there wasn't so much rest and relaxation, it was to learn. It was learn how, to, how Jesus discipled and uh, to learn about his life and what he did there. And so Nicole was correct. When we returned from our family vacations, uh, excuse me, trips, we were usually exhausted. Case in point. In 2011, we took a trip to Disney World in Florida. At Christmas of that year, we announced to the kids that it was going to happen. It was happening in February, so we had about two months to prepare. And in those two months, we had no less than three or four family meetings where the first one, we distributed all the resources. This was all the things that we could do while we were there, all the rides, all the attractions, all the parks, everything. There was homework. We all went away, prioritized what we want. For the second meeting, we compared all our notes, and by the third meeting, we had figured out kind of what we wanted to do to make sure that everybody at least got their top things in. And uh, we researched every ride, what was the longest time, wait times and the shortest, and when were the shortest, and we laid it all out. We developed a schedule that was a floating schedule By that, I mean we got to Florida, we looked at the forecast, and then we moved the days around. So the days that were going to be the hottest, that was the day for the beach and some of the outdoor stuff. 
On the day that it was going to be rainy, we had a park that was mostly indoor stuff, so we just reshuffled the whole schedule, worked it all out. We arrived when the parks opened. Michelle would take one of the kids and run this way to get the fast pass for later in the day. I'd take the others, go that way, make some reservations. We'd meet up at a ride. We'd ride that thing two or three times because there was no wait times. We'd come back later in the day. There'd been people standing there for an hour and a half and we'd walk by them with our heads held high. I'd say, yeah, we did that one three times. It's okay. We didn't wait more than 15 minutes for any ride that entire week. When we maximized our time, uh, we stayed till the parks closed. We went back to the hotel, got a few hours of sleep, got up and did it all the same thing for the entire week. Yes, at this stage, if you want to feel sorry, feel sorry for my children, please go ahead. I think the damage is probably irreversible. But I will say we executed that particular trip flawlessly. We were a lean, mean, efficient machine. I don't recall any moments of spontaneity the entire week. <laughs> but if there was, I can guarantee you it was planned and in the schedule. Now, I tell you all that because imagine the irony of me, that person, that type A personality, now standing before you this morning to share wisdom and insights around the concept of being still. I can only say God works in mysterious ways and be very careful about what you pray about. But seriously, I'm excited to share what God's put on my heart in this regard. So let's dig in and explore some of this concept of prayer. Um, please feel free to grab your Bible or your Bible app or the Pew Bible. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Um, or just follow along on the screen here as we, as we read this text. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most holy dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's lay the groundwork as we start to unravel a little of this. You know, what are the Psalms? Well, this book that we have in our Bibles called the Psalms is actually a collection of five books of early songs and poetry. And who wrote this particular Psalm? Well, you can see in your Bible, the title caption says, it was the sons of Korah. Well, let me tell you quickly about Korah. He was a descendant of Levi. And he had duties in the service of the tabernacle. But eventually, he accused Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves above the congregation. So Korah gathered some close allies and 250 other men, and he raised up a revolt. He thought he could do a better job leading the tribe of Israel than Moses and Aaron. And so in essence, 
he was revolting against God. Well, as you can imagine, God didn't take kindly to this. In his punishment, he caused the ground to split, to open up, and it swallowed up Korah, his allies, all their families, and all their possessions. And then on top of that, fire rained down and consumed the other 250 men that were involved in the remote in the revolt that were at that time offering incense. And this whole calamity is recorded for all to read in Numbers 16. And you thought your family had issues, huh? (laughs) So fast forward a few generations and we have the sons and grandsons of Korah. And even though Korah himself met a nasty demise, in 1 Chronicles 9.19, we learn that his ancestors went on to serve as the gatekeepers of the tabernacle. And then here in the Psalms, we come across some songs they wrote. But keep in mind that backstory when you read some of the lines in, in Psalm 46, especially that line about the earth giving way. Do you think that had special significance in that family? Let's also look quickly at how the psalm is structured. It's likely laid out to be sung in a responsive manner. So by that I mean the people of Jerusalem or the Levitical choir would sing the opening stanza, which was the first three verses. Then the Levitical worship leader would sing the stanza, the second stanza, verses four through six. The people of the choir would respond with the chorus, which was verse seven. The worship leader would sing stanza three, verses seven through 10. And then the people of the choir would repeat the chorus in verse 11. Not so unlike how we may do some of our worship, right? And the theme of Psalm 46 is very similar to the theme in Psalm 48, just a couple chapters later. And it really is summarized in the very first verse of this psalm. That theme being, even in times of trouble, God is always there as our refuge and our strength. And its whole psalm is framed around a celebration of the city of Jerusalem. We see that mostly in verses 4 and 5. Note the reference to the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Now some of you I know are thinking, wait a minute, there's no river in Jerusalem. You're correct. The psalmist here is using it as a metaphor for the continual outpouring of the sustaining and refreshing blessings of God. But much of this psalm isn't rosy and calm, is it? I mean, just look at the chaos around the earthquakes, the mountains crashing in the sea, the waters roaring with foam. Can you feel the terror of nature there? Then later, the psalmist alludes to the terrors caused by man through war. But in all of these instances, we witness God intervening. He establishes his authority, his control through his words and his actions. He is ever-present, and when he acts, it's decisive. I love verse 8. Come and see the works of the Lord. But also note what God commands of us. Let's zero in on verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Now what does God mean when he tells us to be still? It's a pretty simple concept, right? It means to be still. Now the Hebrew imperative verb, remember this, imperative. An imperative is a command. I'm going to come back to that several times. An imperative is a command. In Hebrew, this imperative, be still, it means stop, enough, relax. A couple decades ago, we probably would have said, chill. Parents, I'll give you a, a, a more conventional example of this. Think about when your hyperactive kids are running around, they're jumping on the pew, they're trampolining off the couch. What do you tell them? You say, hey, settle down, be still. That's this word, be still. But there's also a sense of stop trying to do stuff. Stop trying so hard to do what you're doing. There's another translation that reads, 
you to cease your striving. Relax. Be still. One final thing. Look at who it's directed at. When Jesus or when God has that comment, who's it directed at? It's not just the Israelites. It's all nations. Gives a little deeper meaning to that. So God commands us to be still. But why is it so difficult to be still? There's many reasons. Let me give you three. First of all, it's difficult to be still because when we're still, we relinquish control. We surrender our control. And someone else or something else is then in control. This goes against our nature, doesn't it? We want to be in charge. We want to be ready to move and react to whatever comes our way. We want to be agile. And when we're not in control, we feel out of control. God is calling us to do nothing. Quit trying, stand down, just be still. Second reason it's so difficult to be still, we're so easily distracted. This world challenges our priorities every minute of every day. Think about this from the enemy's perspective for a second. If he can distract us from a relationship with God using anything or everything, He's going to do it. It doesn't matter what it is. If it distracts us, he's going to use it. And he's got an arsenal full of tools. Another way to look at this is we say, I'm not still. I just don't have time. But really, isn't that just another way of saying this isn't on the top of my priority list? What we choose to do with our time is our choice. We all have the same number of hours and minutes every day. Are we making stillness before God one of those priorities? The third reason it's so difficult to be still is pride. Uh, here I have a confession to make, is that I've realized my schedule can be a great point of pride. When I tell people, look at me, look how busy I am, I'm so busy I'm almost to the point of dysfunction. That's a sinful attitude when I boast about what I can accomplish. And it becomes all about me rather than focusing on the one who works in and through me. God knows the attitude of my heart. And for me, when it comes to boasting about my busyness, that attitude is now as pure. That's pride. So if it's so difficult, why does God call us to be still? We can go back through those, those first three things to identify it. First of all, when he wants us to relinquish control, he wants us to surrender control to him. Let him do the work and have his way, not our way. Second of all, with the distractions, he wants us to refocus our priority on what truly matters, him and his kingdom. And when it comes to pride, he wants us to humble ourselves, to put him in his rightful place in our lives. But in verse 10, being still is only the first part of the command, right? The second part is know that I am God. There's two parts at work here. Look at the last three words, I am God. That's a fact. The Lord Almighty is God. He states it succinctly and in all finality, he is God. The one and only, point of fact, period, end of story, he is God. The second, and I love the usage of this verb, again, it's an imperative, which is a command, is the word no. So this being said, he is God, that fact, God implores us to be confident in that truth. Know that I am God. He doesn't say ponder whether I am God or wonder if I'm God or consider that I may be God or even contemplate that perhaps I am one of many gods. He calls us to acknowledge it outright. No, I am God. How many of you have seen the movie Rudy? Yeah, this is a movie from the early 90s based on the true story about Rudy Rudiger. 
a young man aspiring to play football for Notre Dame in the mid-70s. About halfway through the movie, Rudy is at the end of his rope in trying to get accepted at Notre Dame. He's worked his tail off. He's studied hard. He's got good grades. He's spent time praying. But so far, he hasn't been able to get that elusive acceptance letter that he needs to Notre Dame. In, in one scene, he's seeking counsel from a priest. And Rudy says, have I done everything I possibly can? Can you help me? The priest has an answer that I think is just beautiful in its simplicity and humbleness. The priest simply replies, Son, in years of religious study, I've come up with only two incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. Now, we could probably debate if that's all we can know for sure, right? But it is a great place to start, acknowledging the truth that God exists and understanding our position in that relationship. Let's go back and talk a little more grammar here. In the Hebrew grammar, the emphasis of coordinate imperatives. What in the world does that mean? Well, an imperative is a command. Coordinate imperatives mean there's two commands, right? And so here, the two coordinate imperatives are be still and know. In Hebrew, the emphasis is on the second one. In other words, we should be still so that we can know. Let's use a more contemporary example again to explain this. What if I said, paint the shed and mow the lawn? Those are independent of each other, right? Or what if I told my kids, clean your room and do your homework? One doesn't require the other. But what if as a baseball coach, I said, swing hard and hit the ball? We're doing the first for the bigger result of the second. And that's what we have here. Be still and know that I am God. We surrender, we're still, in order to know that God's in control. We let go in order to objectively know the saving power of God in our lives. Quick sidebar here because I'm so excited about imperatives. I was contemplating other times when God uses imperatives to talk about prayer. There's a ton of them. Uh, Two quick verses. One in James 4, 7 through 10. He says, Therefore, uh, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And probably one of my favorite all-time verses in the scripture, Jeremiah 33.3, the imperative, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you don't know. That word tell can also be translated show. I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Isn't it interesting to see when there's a command there what the response is? Powerful. So what does it look like to be still and know that he is God. Jesus modeled this for us in cave time. He frequently got away by himself to pray, leaving the crowds, even the disciples, to spend time alone with his father. Look at Luke 5, 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This happens several times in passages in Scripture. 
talking about Jesus frequently getting away. In Mark 1, Jesus rose early, went off to a lonely place to pray. In Luke 4, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness to pray. In Matthew 14, Jesus went away to grieve John the Baptist's death. In Luke 6, Jesus spends the whole night praying before calling his 12 disciples. In Mark 6, after feeding the 5,000, he goes off to pray. In Luke 22, Jesus prays alone before being arrested in the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you have in your imagination what some of those cave time, those places look like that Jesus went to? Let me help you out a little bit. We just returned from Israel. This first picture is one of the caves near the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus supposedly gave the Sermon on the Mount. It's, uh, it's, it's said that this is a place where Jesus went, went away. Um, I was in the cave. I didn't see his initials carved anywhere, so I can't confirm that. But this would have been the region where Jesus was. This were the kind of places where he would hang out in this cave. And before you think it, it looks pretty dark and rustic, let me spin the camera around, show you the view looking outside of this cave is looking over the Sea of Galilee. This could have been the places where Jesus was having his quiet time, where he was spending stillness, acknowledging his father and praying over people. This third picture is the Wadi Kelt. Uh, Seth talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, where it's thought that Jesus spent his 40 days in solitude. In the Bible, it says he spent in the wilderness. In Israel, wilderness doesn't mean trees like we think about it. Wilderness means vastness. And so it's areas like this. Look at the ruggedness, the aridness. Do you manage in spending 40 days there just fully focused on prayer in being with your father. Uh, the fourth, this is the Mount of Olives. Uh, we know that Jesus often went here. This was one of his favorite places. And note the view. He is looking at Jerusalem from under these olive trees. He could see him sitting there praying over the people of Jerusalem, weeping over Jerusalem. This was where Jesus had his cave time. My point here is that cave time doesn't always need to be in a cave, right? It's a metaphor. Here's my question for you. Where's your cave? Where are those places that you go to be still and know that he is God? Is it at your dinner table before the rest of the family gets up and runs for the day? Is it in your car or on the commute to work or to class? Is it in your office before your meetings start up? Is it in your classroom before the kids arrive? Is it a favorite chair? Is it a walk around the neighborhood or in the country? Is it in a boat, maybe on a bike? Is it at the foot of your bed as you wrap up your day? Is it someplace else? I'd encourage you to be intentional about seeking out your caves and making them a priority in your daily and weekly life. So why is it so critical to recognize God for who he is? It's because of a blessed assurance that the ultimate comfort and confidence that the Lord Almighty is with us. There's this, this passage in, in uh, Psalm 46 we don't want to miss. I was once told that if you see something repeated, a word or concept in the Bible, that means that God really wants you to get your attention. This is one such thing. Look at verse 7, verse 11, exactly the same. This is the chorus. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What's the result of being still and knowing he is God? It's that we can rest assured that the Lord Almighty is with us. And not just with us, he's our fortress, our strength, and our refuge. Have you ever had an experience where you followed God's imperatives, his commands, and the result has been his assurance that he's with you? When I was 22 years old, I was seeking God's help in discerning his will for my relationship with Michelle. We had discussed marriage, and I knew, about this, uh, I knew all about this beautiful woman of godly character, the role she was playing in my life. But I also knew and recognized I was young 
And I wanted so badly not to make a life-impacting decision outside of God's will. It was about this time, uh, roughly about a two-month period, if I remember correctly, that I went on a weekend youth retreat to Cooperstown Bible Camp. I was a youth sponsor here at Salem. We went away for the weekend. And my heart was heavy. Each morning I got up long before the kids got up and I went for these walks on the long gravel roads around camp in the stillness of the night. And I laid my prayers at God's feet, asking for his guidance. After two mornings of being still and seeking him in the early morning hours, I felt more confused. I felt like I was being abandoned. I just wanted his guidance. I just wanted him to tell me what to do. But then, as I neared the end of my walk on the second day, I felt this little voice telling me to turn around. And in doing so, I saw the most amazing sunrise I think I've ever seen. And in that moment, through the beauty and awesomeness of his power, of his creativity, his sovereignty, and the stillness of creation, the Spirit whispered to my soul four simple words. I am with you. Not a yes or a no on if I should proceed with marriage, but God gave me something much deeper, much more rich, much more valuable. Simply a reminder of who he is in his promise to be with me as I navigated this decision in the rest of my life. I won't spoil the rest of that story, but that was a turning point in one of the richest blessings of my life. And we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary in December. Just the power of knowing God is with us. What a blessing, what a comfort. But at some point, we need to come out of the cave and embrace the table in the road, right? What then? We get a hint in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is, the, is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But how in the world do we pray continually once we've left our cave and we're trying to navigate the daily rhythms and the decisions and sometimes the chaos of our lives? How do we carry this attitude of prayer of resting in God from Psalms 46 outside of our cave? If you know me, you know that I love the creative arts. I love a good story, a good movie, a good musical. I especially enjoy how they bring uh, stories to life sometimes providing new insights or giving you a different or clearer perspective or picture on an event. It was so fun in Israel to hear how Jesus was a storyteller. I can relate to that. That's how he connected with his followers and his audiences. One such medium, one such show that has captivated me recently is The Chosen. I'd like to share one scene with you. It retells the story told in Matthew, Mark, and John envisioning what it may have been like for the disciples as they sat terrified in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. They were definitely not in their cave. Give this a look. Everyone get into the boat and row back across to Capernaum. What about you? <laughs> it's been a long three days. I need some time alone to pray. But there are storm clouds in the horizon. Let me stay with you, Rabbi. I'll keep watch. Be fine. All of you go. Hurry. Follow Simon. You all did so well today. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. 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 shalom.
are too strong. We should turn back. We can get there. Just keep rowing. Simon, it's the fourth watch of the night and we've been stuck in the same place for Wet and cold on land and drowned and dead out here. John, keep rowing. What are you doing? Did anybody just see that? Over there. I don't see anything. What are we looking for? Let me go. I got you. 
all you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now let me go. I have much planned for you, Simon. Including hard things. Just keep your eyes on me. I promise. The first time I saw that episode of The Chosen, it spoke to me in a very meaningful, very powerful way. You see, I was feeling the weight of God calling me to new levels of discipleship and service. Quite frankly, I was having a lot of feelings of being inadequate, overwhelmed, incapable, even unworthy. Have you been there? Those lines repeated twice by Jesus in that clip, keep your eyes on me keep your eyes on me, reverberated my soul and in my mind and have since become a daily slogan or motto for me as I get out of bed each morning. It's proven to be such a simple but powerful rhythm as I start each day just reminding myself of that phrase, keep your eyes on Jesus. So let me ask you, what boat are you in this morning? Maybe things are going well. You're in a time of calm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, but recognize that storms will come. So build your house on the rock, not in the sand. And as you build your house, keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe like, like me, God is calling you to step out in new levels of faith. Maybe there's new challenges or opportunities at work, at school, in church, in ministry, in your family, or in your circles of influence. Maybe God's even calling you to change your geography. Maybe you sense the Spirit is leading you to be more open about sharing your faith. Maybe like me, you feel inadequate, unprepared, even scared. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe the storm is that you're struggling with strained relationships or loss. Maybe there's some barrier driving a wedge in a friendship. Maybe you're feeling distance in your relationship from your parents or your children. Maybe you recently experienced heartbreak in the breakup of a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you're struggling through difficulties in your marriage. Maybe you're feeling disconnected. Maybe there's bitterness or separation. Or maybe you're suffering through the loss of a loved one. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe your storm is that you're struggling in the area of finances. Uh, maybe a recent job loss leaves the future uncertain. Maybe you're overwhelmed with debt and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe the business that you poured everything into is on shaky ground or is recently folded. Maybe poor decisions are haunting you. Maybe like me, you're even concerned about the burden of our church's financial position. The deficit seems daunting, seems debilitating. 
but I'm reminded that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe the storm is that you or a loved one are struggling through health issues. Uh, maybe some physical or mental illness is keeping you from living the full life that you want. Maybe depression or anxiety are robbing you of your joy. Maybe a recent diagnosis has upturned your priorities, left your future unsure. He provides a peace that passes all understanding. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Or maybe you're struggling with sin or addiction. Maybe you feel defeated and unworthy. Maybe your decisions and actions have hurt those that you love, maybe caused a chasm between you and God. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone to be redeemed. Maybe you feel unloved by a holy God. His mercies are new every morning. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Helen Lemmel was born in England in 1864, the daughter of a Methodist pastor. Her family moved to the United States when she was 12 and eventually they settled in Wisconsin. From a young age, Helen developed a reputation as a brilliant and talented musician, singer, and songwriter, traveling and performing widely through the Midwest. In 1907, Helen moved to Germany to undergo intensive music training. And it was there that she met her husband. They were married, returned to the United States in 1911, where she faithfully served the Lord, writing and teaching songs of faith. But then a few short years later, tragedy struck. Helen suffered an illness, causing her to lose her vision. Her husband, refusing to attend to a blind wife, left and abandoned her. The hurt, the agony of losing her sight and her husband were overwhelming, all-consuming. But in 1918, Helen was introduced to a pamphlet written by Lilas Trotter, a well-known artist who had given up a lucrative career to serve as the Lord as a missionary in Algeria. Trotter's words stirred Helen's soul as Helen would later write, Suddenly, as if commanded to stop and listen, I stood still. And singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus, with not one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme or note to note to make melody. The lyrics of Helen's now well-known hymn, written by this blind and broken soul, went like this. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Whatever boat you're in this morning, whatever you're facing, lean into him in prayer. Be still. Know that he is God. Rest assured that the Lord Almighty is with you. And as you leave your cave, keep your eyes on Jesus. Heavenly Father, so often we get distracted by this world we live in. We run a million miles an hour, but we fail to follow your simple instructions to be still, to acknowledge you as God the God of eternity from generation to generation, our creator, our redeemer, and our friend. You alone, Lord, are our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in time of need. 
grant us the assurance of knowing you are with us and the perspective to seek you, to spend time with you, to pray, to lean into you as we navigate this life and every day. For your glory and honor and praise. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing that chorus together. Yeah. Hey.